And we have seen that the book of Judges is this series of true stories that are written with the intention of showing us God's grace. And in light of that, to call us to faith and obedience. And tonight we really do kind of come to the end. If, if, if you have been with us this semester, you have seen that there's a pattern to this book. It is this cycle that's happening over and over and over that functions kind of like a downward spiral. And tonight we kind of get to the rock bottom where it cannot get really any worse than it gets tonight. This is, the, this is the climactic grand finale of the book. And what we see here is this picture of utter moral deterioration. It's graphic. It's horrific. And there's, been, there's a commentary that I've been using alongside of you know, working through this passage, working through this series. And this particular commentary just skips this chapter. It's like, let's just pretend that's not there. In fact, there are several pastors that just kind of refuse to preach on this particular chapter. It's, it's so, I, I, think, I think Christians are embarrassed that this is in the Bible. But one of the reasons why at RUF we systematically work through a book of the Bible and not just kind of talk about our soapbox topics and issues that we like to talk about is because when we do that, when you work through a book of the Bible, you, you can't avoid the parts that make you feel uncomfortable. And tonight really is one of those kind of uncomfortable passages. I have not been looking forward to talking about this all week, but here we are. And so in light of that, um, let me read it. This is Judges chapter 19, and believe it or not, this is God's word for us. Judges chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethel in Judah. And she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. Now I skipped a section there because it was kind of superfluous. Basically the Levite goes, gets his concubine, and then starts heading back home with the servant. And now we pick up in verse 14. They're on their way back home. So they went on. And the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. And there they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the men of that place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. And when he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? And he answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem and Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem and Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his house. We we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, uh, your servants, me, your maidservant, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome in my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took them into his house and fed his donkeys. And after they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. And while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do this disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine 
and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. And then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. And when he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. And everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. This is God's word. Let me pray. And then we'll look at it together. Gracious Father, we would ask that you would meet us here. However we find ourselves believing, not believing, Uh, trying to believe, uh, maybe trying to believe again, would you meet us in the midst of our bitterness and our anger and our boredom and our cynicism? Uh, Meet us with our questions, our concerns. Father, we need to hear from you tonight. And so I would ask that you would speak through me and to me and despite me. That's our prayer because we have no hope of understanding this and making sense of this, and this being good news, apart from your help. So would you do that now? We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently heard uh, this story from one of my fellow RUF campus ministers, and it was just too unbelievable to not share with you. He tells this story at this time when he was in high school. His dad worked for this huge company at the time called Multimedia. It was this enormous company that owned like baseball teams and talk shows. It was just an enormous company, headquartered in New York City. And as most companies have to do, um, you have to take a look at the books and figure out, you know, is the money that we're spending going to all of the right places? And so they sent two of their most trusted employees to the headquarters in New York City to do this internal audit. It was a two-week program, and so, two-week project, and so because this company had a relationship with with one of these, like, high-end, fancy hotels in New York City, these two guys got to stay in this fancy New York hotel for two weeks while they did this project. So the two guys go up there, do the project, finish the audit, and they're about to leave after their two-week stay. And the company receives a phone call from the hotel. Because it turns out on the day that they were leaving, a housekeeper walked into the room where they were staying. And on the bed was a big suitcase that was open. And filled to the brim of this suitcase was a large amount of candy. You know whenever you leave um, Los or Dos and they have that little basket of peppermints and you take one or two, but inevitably someone from your group grabs like a handful? They had these little bowls of candy in the hotel lobby. And so every single day, these guys would walk through the lobby, see the bowl of candy, and dump the whole thing into their pockets. And after doing that every single day for two weeks, they accumulated a lot of candy. Why? I I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Maybe it was to bring back to their um, kids. But 
Um, who really knows? But you have to think, as they're walking through the hotel lobby, they're thinking in their minds, um, okay, it's not a big deal. It's just candy. Besides, no one's really eating it anyway. It's just there. It's no big deal. And what ended up being, what ended up happening, you know, they thought it was no big deal, but it ended up being a very big deal because they found themselves sitting in front of their boss and their boss looking at them and saying, you are fired. And they lose a very successful, very influential, important corporate job for stealing candy. Why am I talking about this? Here's why. We can justify our decisions, our sinful behaviors, as small things all we want. We can say, you know, it's no big deal. It's just, it's just a little bit of candy. And as long as we keep making these small compromises and keep living this life of small compromise, small compromise, if we keep going down that road, eventually what it takes is someone from the outside who stops us and exposes us for what we are truly doing. And when we finally have eyes to see through the eyes of someone else, we begin to see this is terrible and this is foolish. And what the, the point of this passage that we just read is really to shock us. The point is really in verse 30. If you look at it where the author says, think about this, consider this. You should be shocked by this. This is terrible. This is disturbing behavior. And so really, I'm sorry that you came to RUF tonight because the whole point of the story is to disturb you. It's to shock us in some way or another. But in a counterintuitive way, really this is the pathway to... uh, to deep joy. And let me explain what I mean by that. I want to highlight three very shocking elements of this passage. Okay? I want to look at the shock of the story itself, the shock of sin, and then the shock of the Savior. Okay? Three S's. The shock of the story, the shock of sin, and the shock of the Savior. Let's just look at the story first. I just want you to have a brief kind of overview so you understand the map and the lay of the land of what's actually going on in the story. We're introduced to the two main characters, which is a Levite and a concubine. Now, a Levite, Levites were a, 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 um, someone in the Old Testament who was set apart for ministry and service to God. Most of the Old Testament, in fact, all of the Old Testament priests were Levites. And here's this Levite who has a concubine. Now, a concubine... Is not a prostitute, nor is it a wife. She is like a second-class wife. She's like a mistress, uh, a sex object. So the story begins by introducing you to these characters, and basically you have more or less a pastor and his sex slave. So already, you know, the story is off to a good start with these two characters. And they, for whatever reason, in verse 2, we find out that this concubine has been unfaithful to him. She cheats on him. And we don't know why she leaves, but she leaves. Maybe it was out of fear for what he was going to do you know, when he you know, finds out about it. So she leaves and goes back to her father's home. And I didn't include all this in your, in your handout, but he doesn't do anything about it. He's like, he could care less. And then four, he waits four months. And then after four months, he, I guess he wants her back. So he gets his servant, and they go to her father's house and hang out with them and basically get her to come back home with him. So that's what's happening in that chunk that I didn't include. So in verse 14, the Levite, his concubine, and his servant are now heading back home. And we find them entering into an Israelite town called Gibeah at sunset. This is an Israelite town, which means this is friendly territory. This is a safe haven. They walk into this town to stay the night. Now, back in the day, they did not have 
hotels or hostels. And so what every culture, what every society did was that you would walk into the town square if you were a stranger, and you would wait for someone from that town to get you and basically to invite you into their home and to, to find lodging there. And so the thing that's so weird about this is there they are in their own town and nobody's welcoming them, nobody's addressing them, nobody's bringing them to their house. And there they are just waiting, they're planning on sleeping out there. And finally along comes this old guy who he is himself not a resident of this town. He is himself just kind of passing through and just happens to own a place in the area. And he sees them and he invites, you know, invites them to come back to his house. But if you look in verse 20, what he says is, whatever you do, don't sleep in the city square. He's basically saying, look, things are not as they seem. This place is dangerous. You are in the, a rough part of the city. So they go back home with them. You know, they get settled in, have some dinner, kick back, you know, ready to kind of chill for the night. And out of nowhere, this mob forms. This, all of the men from the city kind of swarm this house and surround it and start pounding on the doors, banging and shouting. And they're screaming, bring that man out so that we can gang rape him through the night. Now you have to imagine, if you're on the inside of this house, how utterly terrifying that would be. Here's this aggressive, forceful, sexually charged mob that is going nowhere, and you have nowhere to run and nowhere to escape. This kind of reminds me like um, a, a zombie movie or a zombie show where, where the survivors are trapped inside, and there's a horde of hungry zombies that are busting through the windows and reaching in. Terrifying. And so what the, what the old man does, the host, he does um, really the unthinkable. He goes out there and says, don't do this. Instead, take my daughter. I don't, I don't have categories to explain that. That makes no sense to me why he would do that. But he does. He says, take her or at least take this dude's concubine. And the crowd is not budging. Which shows you, by the way, these two men's view of women at the time, that they viewed these two women as basically property. They're expendable. Which goes completely contrary to the Bible's design and intention and description of what both man and woman are. Is that they are made in God's image and therefore deserving dignity, deserving honor, deserving protection. But these two guys are not in line with God's ways at all. And the crowd's not budging. And so what the Levite does himself is he grabs his concubine against her will, opens the door, throws her out to the crowd, closes the door behind him. And the crowd seems to be satisfied with that. And they rape her through the night. It's horrific. And the man, the old man and the Levite, go to bed. And sleep peacefully through the night. Wake up the next morning. Have their coffee. Have their breakfast. Levite's packing his luggage, getting ready to continue on his journey. Walks out the door and there is his concubine laying down still on the ground. And if you notice his, his, his response, there's no response of sympathy. You know, are you okay? Like, are, are you all right? He barks at her, get up. I mean, the, he, he's just heartless. Get up. And she doesn't respond because she's dead. And at this, he is outraged. He is outraged because not that she has been raped and abused through the night. He's outraged because basically they've damaged his property beyond repair. And so if you saw, he, he takes her corpse, goes back home, takes out a knife, 
and systematically cuts her up into 12 different pieces and then FedExes the limbs all throughout the nation of Israel, to one to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the reason why he does this is to, is to fire up the entire nation of Israel to come together and basically to wipe this town off the face of the earth. And that's what happens. The whole nation of Israel comes together and there's this, you know, in, this, in the next chapter ahead, there's this enormous civil war where thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites die in battle. And that's how the book of Judges ends. That's kind of the story here. And at every single turn. It's just shocking. It's shocking. But I want to draw out two applications, or two implications rather, and that's what I want to do in these, these next two points. Let's just take a look a step deeper and look at the shock of sin. I just want to look at an implication, look at the shock of sin. Here's the second thing. When you and I scan all of humanity, we basically divide people into two different camps. We have good people and we have bad people. If you're a Christian, if you consider yourself to be spiritual or religious, we we basically kind of divide people along the lines of religious people and irreligious people. Here are the people that are religious, that do the right things. Here are the irreligious people that do all the bad things. And we we may say, you know, nobody's perfect, but you you could easily kind of separate the two. And what this story does, this story functions like a wrecking ball and just demolishes those categories. That sin, the the disease and the wickedness of sin does not just plague evil, bad people, but it plagues the good, upstanding religious people as well. Because think about it. I mean, when you and I think about the word sin or wickedness, what we picture in our mind is like the men from the city, the men from this particular town, completely sexually out of control, inhumane, brutal, don't care about anybody but themselves. That's what we think about when we think about like bad people, wicked people. But, that, you know, that's very obvious. But the main character in this story is a Levite. He's a religious guy. He's probably involved in ministry and service. Here you have a good, upstanding religious guy. And what do we see with him? He has the same exact problem. He's sexually out of control. I mean, he's got a concubine for starters. He he is completely inhumane, completely heartless, completely ruthless, completely callous. The way that he talks to her, the way that he treats her. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. And so what I want you to see is that on the surface, these two people seem radically different. Religious, good, keeping all the rules. Irreligious, bad, breaking all the rules. On the surface, completely different and underneath, exactly the same. They're both radically selfish radically self-interested, don't care about anybody but themselves. What this story does is it's supposed to shock us into thinking, okay, our religious activity doesn't protect us from this. We are just as guilty, we're just as condemned, we're just as sinful as the people on the other side, That you know, those people. And, and I'll just say this, if you are a religious person, and here we are in this religious room. The danger of, of being involved in religious activity, it's especially dangerous being involved in pastoral, full-time ministry, for me, is that you can begin to, you can begin to buy into the lie that I'm, I'm okay, I'm pretty good. Because, you know, I read the Bible, I go to church, I pray, 
I'm not getting hammered on the weekend like those people. I'm not sleeping around like those people. I'm not like them. You know, they're making all the bad decisions. I'm making all the right decisions. And therefore, comparatively, I'm coming out okay. I, you know, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. But comparatively, I'm, I'm coming out okay. That's what we're tempted to believe, and it's a lie. Because what the story does is it comes crashing into us saying, it does not matter if you are religious or not. We are all deeply infected with this thing called sin. Now, I've mentioned this at, at, um, at RUF before, but I feel like it's relevant to bring up again. Sufjan Stevens, a few years ago, came out with um, a song on his Illinois album called John Wayne Gacy Jr., And it's a song about a true historical figure that lived in Chicago in the 1970s by that name, John Wayne Gacy Jr., who was a serial killer. It's a true story, and he writes a song about this guy. And the story, John Wayne Gacy Jr., is this man in the 70s would lure little boys into his apartment by dressing up like a clown. He would rape these little boys, and then he would kill them and store their bodies underneath the crawl space of his house. And the song is about that. And it is, it is haunting. It is hard to listen to that song without either tearing up or at least just having your stomach turn. And at the very end of the song, Sufjan Stevens transitions from the narrator mode of describing the, the story, and he transitions into his own voice. And here's what he says. He says, In my best behavior... I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. And did you catch what he said? He said, on my best behavior, I am like him. This pedophile serial killer. Now the shock that you hear from that song is the point. That's the point of that song and that's the point of this passage. Is to shock you into the reality that I am... I am no different from someone like that. When I look at myself rightly, apart from God's grace, apart from the grace of God, I am no different from that pedophilic serial killer. Not in the sense that my sins are just as heinous, but in the sense that apart from God's grace, I am no better, that I am bankrupt. I, I am, I, there is no goodness in me. You are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. That's what we say every single week here at RUF, and that's kind of the point of this first thing that we have to look at, is that there is no goodness in us. Now, I realize some of you are thinking, this is utterly offensive. This is just, this is just preacher hyperbole, right? This, the, the guy up front is just using that Christian scare tactic into guilting me into getting more religious with my life, and I'm not buying it. Look, I... That's not what I'm doing. What I want you to do is I want you to just ask yourself a question. If you ask yourself this question honestly and answer it honestly, here's the question. What do you do with that feeling of sometimes I just wish I could hit the reset button on my life? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I've talked to several students that have that nagging unexplainable, deep-down sense of guilt where it just feels like there is that thing hanging over them that they could just wish they could pay off their debt and go home. 
they could just hit the reset button and wipe the slate clean. Because there are things in your life and there are things in my life that feel like they just hang over us. And as a result, we constantly feel like we're not measuring up. We constantly feel like we're just not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not kind enough. We're not disciplined enough. We're not spiritual enough. We're always falling short. And because that thing is nagging us and just hanging over us, it just feels like, I just wish I could hit the reset button. And the question I want to ask you is how do you explain that feeling? Why is that there? I think this passage is, is actually inviting you to lean into that feeling and to explore why is that guilt there. And, and if you are brave enough to uncover those stones in your own life and in your own heart and your own story, I think you will be shocked by what you see. Because the point of this passage is to show us it does not matter if you are religious or not. It doesn't matter if you keep all the rules or if you break all the rules. Every one of us, myself included, are deeply self-interested, self-absorbed, racist, greedy, lustful, murderers in our heart. And it's shocking. And we should be shocked by it. Last thing I want to bring up here is the shock of the Savior. The shock of a Savior. If you look at the very next chapter in the book of Judges, the Levite actually retells the story. The big crowd forms around him. They're like, why are you mailing us body parts? And he explains to them, here's what happened. There's a mob that formed around the house, and they were intending to kill me. Now, that's both true and false. They formed around the house, but they were not intending to kill him. They were intending to have sex with him. And... But he knows, so that's true, but he knows, okay, this mob is so forceful, it's so aggressive, if I go out there, they will kill me. And he was right, because the woman who did end up going out there was killed. So the thing that I'm trying to highlight is that the people in the house were not safe. Their very lives were at stake. This mob was so aggressive, it was so forceful, that their lives were on the line here. And so... The Levite grabs this woman against her will and he throws her to the crowd and he sacrifices her life to save his own. And she is abused and she is tormented and he rests peacefully in bed. She is torn to pieces and he is at peace. She she dies so that he might live. She's the savior. And yet she did not ask to be the savior. She didn't want to be the savior. I mean, if you think about it, who would want to save this guy anyway? Heartless, callous, ruthless. Who would want to save someone like that? He's so undeserving. Furthermore, who would ever willingly step out of that door and undergo that sort of abuse and that sort of torment so that that guy, that undeserving, wicked man, would be protected and safe? Who would ever willingly do that? You know who would? Jesus would. And he did. This woman is a dim picture, but she is a graphic picture of the true Savior, the Lord Jesus. Because what Jesus does, the the thing that really threatens you, the thing that really threatens to undo you, Jesus walks into and he takes, he takes it. And he, didn't th- he wasn't thrown against his will into it. He willingly walked out, voluntarily. 
So what we see is that Jesus, you know, if he were in this particular story, he would have said, stay in the house. I will go out there. And he walks out and he undergoes the abuse and the torment. And he dies in the place of the people who go free and are safe and protected. He gets undone. He gets tormented. He gets abused at the cross so that you and I may go free. His love for undeserving, wicked, ugly people like me, it is shocking. Now, I know that you have things in your life and in your story where you think that this is too big, it's too shameful, it's too ugly to ever be forgiven. God could, God could never forgive me for this. Maybe you yourself have sexually assaulted someone. Or maybe when you were younger, you sexually abused someone. Maybe you have acted out on your desire for uh, someone of the same sex. Maybe you have lost your virginity in a way that you never anticipated. Maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe you are so ashamed of the way that you starve yourself or the way that you cut yourself. What is it for you that is just nagging and hanging over you and it's in your story like a... It will not go away and it just feels like this weight that you feel like can never be forgiven, can never be erased. The good news of the gospel is that there is nothing so big that Jesus can't handle it. Your sin and my sin may be shocking, but his grace is bigger. It's that much more shocking. Because the good news of the gospel is that what Jesus actually undergoes at the cross is what we deserve. So that when we come to God, with our mess, with our shame, with those sorts of things, our real sin, not just our fake sins, but the real ones. He does not shame us. He does not label us. He embraces us purely by grace, purely because of what Jesus has done. You are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of his grace. And that is really good news. I want to end with this. I want to read a passage from Isaiah 53. It's an Old Testament passage that's explicitly about Jesus. And I want you to pay attention to the language here, how graphic and barbaric the language is describing his death. But I also want you to pay attention to why and what, is under, what, what he is undergoing at the cross and who for. I'm just going to read it. This is from Isaiah 53. Surely he, that's Jesus, took up our infirmities And he carried our sorrows. And yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. 
For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Jesus dies the death that I deserve. And he dies the death that you deserve. And when you become convinced of that, that's when you finally get the courage to come to him with your real sins, your real shame, your real secrets, as shocking as they may be, and come to the cross and find healing and acceptance and joy and forgiveness. So will you bring him your sin tonight, right now? Will you bring him the, the shocking reality of your sin, knowing that you will be met with the shocking reality of a gracious Savior? That's the invitation. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, you know, and that I know, and many of us know, that we have a great need for a Savior, and we have a great Savior for our need. Father, this, this, is, this is uncomfortable to talk about. I do not like talking about this. And yet, Father, you, you said that confession and being honest about the shocking reality of our sin is actually the pathway to joy. That we would, we would experience the joy of our salvation when we, when we bring our need and our mess, as ugly and as broken as it is, to you. And to experience a love that is, that is so profound, that is so amazing, that is, that is incomparable. Father, I need to see the loving embrace of your son once again. And I know these folks do as well. So would you convince us afresh of the joy that is held out for us at the cross if we would just come with our sin. Not our resumes, not our accomplishments, but only our sin. That's good news, Father. I pray that I would believe it, and I pray that these folks would believe it too. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.